Let's pray as we come to um, read from God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence with us this morning. It is a joy and a privilege to come into your presence together, to know that your Holy Spirit is moving in our midst. And Lord, I want to pray that you would continue to move powerfully during this time. As we read from Matthew's Gospel, as I preach, Lord God, would you have your way with us as your people? Would you move in our hearts and would you speak and would you be glorified and honoured? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week we read a story from Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus was hungry. He found a fig tree without any figs on it and he cursed that fig tree and it immediately withered and died. And why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus curse that fig tree? That was a strange thing to do last week, wasn't it? Well, this week we're going to pick up on that story and we're going to understand the imagery of the fig tree withering and dying. And we're going to understand why that story matters, why Jesus chose to do that slightly bizarre thing. So as I read from Matthew 21 verses 33 to 46, remember that earlier, before this passage that I'm about to read, earlier that day, the disciples had seen a fig tree, a fruitless tree, withering and dying. And now Jesus tells a story which links back to that fig tree moment. So I'm reading Matthew 21 verses 33 to 46. Jesus speaking. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a winepress in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, what's going on in this parable that Jesus tells and what does it mean for us today? Well, the first thing I notice in this parable in verse 33 is there's lots of detail. 
Jesus doesn't just say, hey, there was a vineyard and this is what happened in the vineyard. He describes a master of the house, a master of the vineyard. He describes the fence that is built around the vineyard. He says that they dug a wine press and put the wine press into the vineyard. There's even a tower in this vineyard as well. Why is there so much detail in Jesus's story? Well, the answer is because Jesus is speaking about a specific vineyard. This isn't just a story that he's plucked from thin air. Jesus is talking about a specific vineyard. And as he talks, he's referencing Isaiah chapter 5 and an Old Testament prophecy, which also describes a vineyard. So I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 5. I'm sorry, I forgot to put this on the PowerPoint, so you have to listen carefully. But this is Isaiah chapter 5, an Old Testament prophecy. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. When Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 21, he's referencing Isaiah 5. The details match the details of that uh, prophecy. And so what do we know in this story, in this uh, parable that's told? Well, firstly, we know the master of the house is the Lord of hosts. The master of the house, the master of the vineyard, is God himself. And the vineyard is the house of Israel. The Lord is the one who dug the vineyard and cleared it and planted it and put stones out. In other words, the reason Israel exists as a nation is because of the loving kindness of God. Israel exists as a nation because God has poured out his love and care upon this nation of Israel. And you can see the same in in Jesus' parable as well. God is the one who appointed tenants. He appointed people to lead in his vineyard, lead in the nation of Israel. The leaders, the priests and the Pharisees were appointed by God to be the tenants of this vineyard that, that God had lovingly created. That's what happened in in the nation of Israel. Having rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God brought them into a promised land, the land of Israel. He gave them everything they needed and looked after them and he looks for fruit in that nation. Just like a vineyard owner would return to his vineyard and say, I'm looking for grapes. So God, having created the nation of Israel, looks for fruit in the nation of Israel. 
And Isaiah 5 verse 7 shows us the fruit that he was looking for. It says in Isaiah 5 verse 7, God looked for justice. He was looking for the fruit of justice in his vineyard. A fairness in making judgments in the land. A wisdom in applying God's law. That's what he was looking for. He wanted to go back to Israel and say, you guys have been faithful to me. I've been faithful to you, loving to you. I've given you everything you've needed. And I'm looking for you to be faithful to me, to judge in a just way. But what does he find instead of justice in the land of Israel? Bloodshed. Or some versions say oppression. Essentially, the powerful people in Israel, the tenants appointed, are using their power to harm people, to hem them in, to push downwards upon the, the lesser, less important people in society, even to the, to the point of bloodshed. They're oppressing people so horrendously that people are, are dying as a consequence of the lack of justice in the land. God looked for also for the fruit of righteousness. He looked for goodness and kindness and mercy. He was looking for the actions of the Israelites to be right in every single way. And instead, what does he hear? What does he find? An outcry. People crying out, saying, There is no goodness, there is no kindness, there is no mercy. We are being oppressed with bloodshed in the land. There's an outcry going out from the downtrodden in society against those people who have been put in charge. These are the fruits that the Lord seeks, not only in Israel, but also in our lives as Christians. Justice and righteousness. All Christians, all true Christians who have a real faith in Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them and transforming their heart, will grow in concern for justice. And not just a a concern, but an action and a real care for the causes of those who are poor and needy. That is what happens in the life of a Christian believer is they're transformed such that they go, we, we mustn't oppress those who are needy and poor and downtrodden in society. We must love them and care for them and take action. And Christians filled with the Holy Spirit also grow in righteousness, grow in good deeds of love. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying that we're sinless as Christians, but we grow in these things because the Holy Spirit leads us into these things. A growth in justice and righteousness. These are the fruits that God is looking for. Now, in Jesus' parable, what what happens in the the parable? So these tenants are, are ruling the vineyard. And Jesus sends servants. God sends servants to the vineyard. And I think when he talks about servants, Jesus surely means the prophets of the Old Testament. God sends prophets to the nation of Israel and the prophets come. And essentially the message of the prophets in the land of Israel is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show the justice that you have not showed. Show the righteousness that you have not shown. So God sends his servants. He sends the prophets into the vineyard. He sends his prophets into the nation of Israel. And what happens to those servants? What happens to those prophets when they come? Well, the answer is they're treated with contempt. I don't know whether you've ever read what happens to the Old Testament prophets. For many of them, it's a horrible, horrible experience. God says, I've appointed you to be my messenger in the land of Israel. And the prophets are going, really? You want me to say that? Do you know what's going to happen to me? Well, let me tell you some of the things that happen to the prophets. The prophet Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned. 
in the Old Testament when he prophesied against the nation of Israel. Do you know Isaiah, um, who we've just read, for, read from, he lived a long time, but according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was murdered as a prophet. In fact, it, the tradition is that he was sawn in half because he was hated for what he was saying. That's not in the Bible, that's a Jewish tradition, but that's what they say happened to the prophet Isaiah. Elijah, the prophet, he didn't die. In fact, he was raised up before he died. He was, he was lifted up into the heavens. It was an amazing end to Elijah's life. But during Elijah's lifetime, the king and queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, killed the prophets of the Lord. He, he, he thinks that he's the only one left because he's looking at what's going on and seeing prophets being killed. The prophet Zechariah was stoned to death. So God sends servant after servant to collect fruit in the land of Israel. They don't find any fruit. They don't find grapes. They find wild grapes that, cannot, that are not useful. And when they prophesy judgment, when they say, this is what God says to you, you need to repent, you need to turn away, you need to change your life, they are beaten, imprisoned, stoned, even murdered. Finally then, the master of the vineyard thinks, well, they've disrespected my servants, the prophets. Whom shall I send? I will send my son to Israel. He says to himself, they will respect my son. And this is this moment in history. In Matthew 21, that's, this is this moment where the son has been sent by the father into Israel, into the world. God has sent his son. Will the religious leaders respect him and listen to him and bear fruit in keeping with repentance finally? Will there be an outbreak of justice and righteousness in the land? Well, the answer is that's not at all how the Jewish people in Jerusalem received Jesus. They've already sought to undermine Jesus' authority earlier in Matthew chapter 21. And in this parable, the implication is that they're driven by greed. In verse 38, the tenants of the vineyard say, come, let us kill him, kill him, and then we will have his inheritance. And so that's precisely what the tenants do in the story And that is precisely what they will do to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has come into the world. He is crucified by those who were jealous of him. He was crucified by those who did not like the threat that he posed to their religious authority. They wanted to play God. Who is this guy? What authority is he doing these miracles by? How dare he come into our temple and drive out what we're doing? It's a response of greed. It's a response of jealousy for their own power. And so they seek to kill him. You notice right at the end of the story that they wanted to arrest him there and then, but they were afraid of the crowds. They didn't do it then, but it's coming. It's coming later on in the story. Of course, in killing Christ, they actually achieve the purposes of God. It was Jesus's mission to come into the world, to live a righteous life and to die upon the cross. We sung a song, didn't we? He chose the cross. That was his choice, his mission. He was saying, I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world so that anyone who believes in me, whatever they've done, can have their sins forgiven and can enter into eternal life and enter into relationship with the Father. So in some senses, these these Jews who hand Jesus over to the Romans to be killed accomplish the purposes of God. And, it's, and we, we love Jesus for dying for us. We love that he chose the cross. We love that he's the substitute in our place. We worship and glorify him as saviour. 
But of course, that's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable wasn't to say, oh, look at the son who comes willingly to die, although he does. The point of the parable was, was to challenge the religious leaders. To say to these religious leaders in Israel, you're not bearing fruit that you've been told time and time again to bear. You've ignored the warnings of the prophets. You even ignored, rejected, and ultimately will kill the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And therefore, they they pour judgment onto their own heads because the end of the parable is that judgment will come. The master of the vineyard will put those wretches to a miserable death, which is appropriate, appropriate for those people who have reacted so poorly to these messages, to this provision, to these prophets, and ultimately killed the Son of God. It's an appropriate response of judgment. The vineyard will be given to a new group of tenants. It will be taken away from them and they will be judged for their sin. And the vineyard, the kingdom of God, will be given to a new people, people who repent of their sin, who receive the Son with gladness, receive the mercy of Jesus Christ who, filled with the Holy Spirit, show justice, live righteously and bear fruit. So this is a prophetic parable that Jesus tells because he predicts his own death, which is yet to come. It's a scriptural parable because it's rooted in the prophecies of Isaiah. And it's, of course, a challenging parable that rebukes because what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is, This is you. You are the evil tenants in this parable. Well, so what? So what? What does this story said to these religious leaders in Israel 2,000 years ago say to us? What difference does this parable make to us as Christchurch Fairham here in 2022? Well, I can think of three applications of this story. And the first thing is this. Whether you choose to receive or reject the Son is the most crucially important thing. Whether you choose to receive or reject the Son is the most critically important thing. Look at verse 42. and Jesus explains this parable to the people. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. The son in the parable was rejected and killed. And we know that Jesus was speaking about himself. Well, now Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 and speaks of himself as a stone. So he's, he's spoken about himself in the parable as the son. And now he talks about himself as a stone. And he says of himself as a stone, firstly, he was rejected by the people. This stone was rejected, just as Christ is rejected by these religious leaders in Jerusalem. But then God made this rejected stone the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building of a building. This is God's doing. God makes Christ the most important stone. So he's rejected by the leaders in Israel, but chosen by God to be the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone in a building has two important functions. Firstly, the cornerstone, when, in, when they built buildings on uneven ground and they weren't necessarily able to flatten the ground, the cornerstone would be the lowest corner of the building. 
And so that cornerstone would bear the most weight of any of the stones that they were building the building with, because it would be the lowest point. So it was very, very important. That stone was the strongest stone, the greatest stone, the best, because all the other stones depend upon the cornerstone. If you pulled the cornerstone out, the whole building would fall and collapse. But secondly, the cornerstone is laid first for the sake of alignment. Do you you see where you lay the cornerstone, that sets where all the walls will go because this wall has to be in alignment. If this stone's lied here, every other stone has to be laying the same way. And all the stones of the next building have to be laying perpendicular at a right angle to the cornerstone. So where you lay the cornerstone determines where the entire building will be built. They all, all the stones have to be laid in alignment to the cornerstone. And so what Jesus is saying about himself is, I am the cornerstone of the house of God. If you want to be part of this house, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must depend upon the cornerstone. You must throw your weight upon Christ. You must, you must be one of the stones that your, your weight is held by Christ because he is the cornerstone. And so Jesus is saying, firstly, throw your life upon me. Call me your cornerstone and say, without me, I do not stand. That's, the cornerstone holds the weight of all the stones. And if you call yourself a Christian this morning, you are saying, I depend upon Christ. He carries my weight. And if you take away Christ, I fall and I am nothing. But secondly, we say this as Christians. Christ is my cornerstone and I am aligned to him. Where he, the direction that he lies is the direction that I want to live my life in. I don't do my own thing as a Christian, but I position myself to align with Christ, the cornerstone. He is the one who holds me up and he is the one who directs my steps. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah referenced again, Isaiah 28 verses 16 to 17, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. So there's two ideas that are are captured in that Isaiah quote. The first is belief. We depend upon Christ as the cornerstone. We put our faith in him. We put our trust in him. You're all putting your trust in chairs right now. In that you've put your trust. I know they're dodgy chairs, but you put your trust in the chair to hold you off the ground. Some of you are even bold enough to lift your legs up, right? Uh, You are trusting in the chair. And that's a picture of what it means to put your faith in Christ. You sit upon Christ. You you say, he's taking my work. Wait, he's the cornerstone. I trust him completely and utterly to never give way. He is so much more of a sure foundation than these chairs in this room. I promise you that. He is the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation. He is the eternal one who has existed before time, who will exist throughout time and will live for eternity. And he will always, if you place your trust in him, he will always carry you. He will always carry you. Believe in him this morning and trust in him. He is the sure foundation. And that's what Isaiah says. Whoever believes in the precious stone, whoever believes in the cornerstone will not be in haste. It will not be a hasty decision. It will be an excellent decision, a good decision, a great decision, an eternal decision. But the verse in Isaiah also speaks about alignment to the cornerstone. 
I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And so do you see again, the same themes are coming out of Isaiah here in this quote as well, that if we are to align to Christ, we need to care about justice. We need to care about righteousness in our lives. Whether you receive or reject Christ is the most crucially fundamental important point. You either receive Christ as God's cornerstone. You believe in him. You depend upon him as a sure foundation. You align to him and show justice and righteousness in your lives. Or, well, what's the alternative in the passage in Matthew 21? Well, look at verse 44. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you aren't built upon the stone of Christ, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you're not aligned to Christ, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling to you. You will fall over him and be broken. Or Christ shall come in judgment and you shall be crushed. You cannot ignore Christ. You can't ignore Jesus. So many people in this, in this world want to ignore Jesus. You can't ignore him because God has made him the cornerstone. And if you ignore him, you will trip on him and be broken into pieces. When I worked in digital marketing, there were people in my office who used to say to me, I'm agnostic on Jesus. He might be the saviour, he might be the son of God, but I, I'm just going to wait until I die and then I'll see him face to face and God knows that I'm a good guy. So, you know, in that moment, I'll be able to put my faith in him and respond then. Well, that's not an option biblically. That's a terrible, terrible decision. You either believe in him now, respond to him now, depend upon him now, or he will be a stone of stumbling to you. That's what the Bible teaches. So don't ignore Christ. Don't ignore him. Make a decision concerning him. God has made him the cornerstone, the most important stone in all the world. And your ignoring of Christ will mean that God is just to punish you. And you'll be crushed. That's what Jesus says about himself. You ignore him or you reject him and you'll be crushed. How you receive how you reject or receive the Son is of critical, critical importance. I would urge you, believe in him today. Align to him today. Be built into the eternal house of God. For the, the consequences, if you don't do that, are dire indeed. That's my first point then this morning. How you receive the Son is of critical, critical importance. My second application of this parable is this. It's a repeat of last week, but I make no apologies for repeating. If salvation depends upon Christ, it does not depend on how religious you are. If your salvation depends upon Christ, it does not depend upon how religious you are. These are the religious leaders. They are the temple leaders. They are the teachers of the word in the temple in Jerusalem. They are the ones who pray publicly and everyone goes, oh, they're really good at praying. And they're the ones who attend the temple daily. They are in every way on the outside massively religious. And yet what does Jesus say in verse 43? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. 
I say it again, I said it last week, there are people who attend church, who look on the outside for all the world like they're the most religious and holy people in the world, and yet they do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They do not have a relationship with God, and they're not bearing the fruits of righteousness and justice. And I really don't want it to be any of you. I really don't want it to be me. Do not presume that because you are a churchgoer, a member of a life group, that you attend prayer meetings, that you are saved. For salvation does not depend upon any of those things. Those things are never going to save you. Salvation is by faith alone. And Christ is the cornerstone, the one in whom we place our faith. Faith in him is the only way to be saved and the only sure foundation. And so I say again, if you're not a Christian, I urge you, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. He is the only way to salvation. And if you are a Christian, remind yourself again that it's purely the work of Christ which has saved you. You have no reason to boast, no reason at all, because it is Christ who has saved you. He has rescued you. Praise and thank him for what he has done in dying for you that you might be saved. Now, I've preached that negatively as a warning to people who might be religious but not have a true relationship with Christ and not bearing the fruits that Jesus is calling. But I also think there's a positive message in here as well. If it's not being religious that saves you, then isn't that magnificent for some of us who might be struggling? You're going through a season where we've had to take a step back. I think Francis' word was just so powerful and wonderful. Perhaps you feel like that shuttlecock up there, which I will do my best to get down for next week now, Francis mentioned. But perhaps you feel like that shuttlecock up there. You once served wonderfully in church, but now you've taken a step back and you've been hurt and, you've, and, and things, have, things don't feel... You don't, maybe you don't feel like you belong in this place because you're not as religious as the other people around you, well, surely this message is, it's not that religiousness that saves you, it's Christ. So place your faith in Christ. And I I tell you, all of us in this room will go through some seasons where we need to take a step back and just just belong and be loved in the place of church. That's okay. We also love it when people step up and say, yeah, I just love it and I've got energy and enthusiasm to go and do this. But we go through seasons of life It's not how much you serve that saves you. It's not how much you serve that changes how much God loves you. You know, if you're on three service teams, then God really loves you. But if you're only on one, then God doesn't love you at all. No way. No way. It's how you receive Christ that matters. And if you are in Christ, then you are saved and beloved for all of eternity. The third application of this parable, of this story, of this passage is, of course, this. Bear fruit in keeping with your faith. Bear fruit in keeping with your faith. Heed the warning to the religious leaders. They were appointed tenants in Israel, tenants of the vineyard, but there was no fruit to collect. That is not how we want to be as Christians. We who have been chosen and saved and rescued, we must bear fruit. Heed the warning of James chapter 2. James 2 verse 17 says this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And in verse 26, James writes this, faith apart from works is dead. And so what James is teaching in chapter 2 is this, he's not saying you are saved by works, But rather, what he's saying is, if there are no righteous works in your life, if your life hasn't changed at all when you became a Christian, then that thing that you call faith, 
Is it really faith or is it dead? James isn't saying you need to add works to your faith in order to be saved. He's saying that true faith grows into works so that you have a concern for justice and you love righteous deeds in your life. And so in that sense, if, you ha- if you're looking at your life and going, I'm exactly the same. I became a Christian and nothing at all changed. Then there's no fruit in your life. That faith is dead. Instead, what happens is you put your faith in Christ and suddenly you begin to love the things that Christ loves. And you, you begin to live more Christ-like lives and you grow. And if you're thinking, I don't know whether there's fruit in my life. I've been in church for ages and I don't know. Why don't you speak to someone who, who you know well? who will be able to say, hey, I've seen this fruit in your life. Because sometimes we're our worst, own worst critics, aren't we? And we go, there's nothing going on. And we we despair. And then someone says, oh, I can't. You showed me such love and kindness the other day. That was wonderful. So just ask yourself, examine yourself. Is there fruit coming from my faith in Christ? My faith is what saved me. Christ is, he's the one who saves me. So my works don't contribute to my salvation. But my works show me that the spirit is at work in my heart. That my faith is not dead, but it is alive in Christ. We need to consider the fig tree in Matthew 21. It didn't produce fruit So Jesus cursed it and it died. We need to consider the tenants of the vineyard who didn't produce any fruit and so were sent to a miserable death by the master of the vineyard. And most importantly of all, we need to consider Christ, the cornerstone to whom we are called to be aligned. And as we do that, we say, can I grow in these fruits? So let's talk about in a bit more detail about those fruits that God is looking for in our lives. Firstly, justice. In Israel, then when Isaiah was written, and in Israel, then when Jesus was preaching to them, and in the whole world now, there is a tendency for the powerful and the rich to oppress the weak and the poor. Just look at our world. You can see it. But Christians with genuine faith should seek true justice doing what they can do to fight for fairness, particularly for orphans and for the widows and those who are poor. We need to fight to love and care for those people who need justice in their lives. In James 2, in the same chapter that I've just referenced, James writes this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? You know, you can say all the right words, but if you don't do anything to love, what good is that, says James? That's, that's, with, that's no works. That's not works. I want to encourage us to be people of justice who not only fight politically for justice, but more importantly, fight for justice as individuals by loving and caring for those who are in need, who need help, who haven't received justice, who are being downtrodden and, and treated difficultly. We need to defend them and help them and serve them and seek to lift them up as best as we possibly can. Secondly, then, righteousness. We want to bear the fruit of justice by caring for those who are downtrodden. We want to bear the fruit of righteousness by doing good deeds, by living in the right way. Christ is the ultimate example of what life looks like when it's a righteous life. And so we seek to follow the example of Christ. And all the commands of God in the the Bible are 
commands that are righteous. And so righteousness looks like obeying the commands of God. But I want to just go to one place. I could, I could, spend, I could preach a whole sermon on what a righteous life looks like. But I just want to go to one place in the Bible to help us this morning. John 13, verse 34. Jesus speaking to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's what righteousness looks like according to Jesus Christ. Loving one another. And Christ says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Well, what did Christ do for us? He laid down his life upon the cross in love. He died for us in our place. That's how much he loved us. And so if we're to grow in righteousness as Christians, we need to love each other with a sacrificial love, laying our own lives down in order to serve the people around us, denying ourselves to show that same love. This is the command of Christ. This is what a righteous life looks like. And let me ask you that question. How are you loving your fellow disciples of Christ? Are you showing righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, in obeying that command? Do not think that fighting for justice and doing good will save you apart from faith in Christ. They won't. These things are not going to save you. You're either, you place your faith in Christ. Christ is the one who saves you. But then since you are saved and transformed, let us fight for justice. And let us live righteously. Let us love one another as Christ has loved us. I pray and hope that we have faith that is alive and working in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. That through that faith, eternal life and forgiveness and salvation and relationship with God the Father and all the blessings of heaven are ours through what Christ has done. And I trust and pray that we would be bearing fruit, fighting for justice, fighting to be righteous, fighting to obey the commands of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this parable, not because it's an easy parable to read, but because it's a challenging one and we need to be challenged. Lord, we thank you that Christ is our saviour, And I pray for everyone in the room right now that we would receive you as saviour, that we would welcome you. We wouldn't reject you, but we would say, yes, my faith is in Christ and he has saved. I thank you that you are the cornerstone and as stones of the house of God, we want to depend entirely upon you. But Lord, we also want to be aligned to you. We want to live in justice and righteousness and bear fruit in keeping with our faith. Lord, if there is any who has faith that is not alive but dead in this room, Lord. Grant alive faith now, Heavenly Father, for your glory. And change us, Lord. We want, to be, we want to be more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. And so I pray you would do that for your glory. Because we love to put our faith in Christ and to worship Christ and to be aligned to him in everything we do. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray now, Lord God, that we would be aligned to the cornerstone. May we not stumble over Christ, but may we believe and trust in him and live for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.